Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Dani Abohawa, grew up near Coventry in the Midlands part of England where she started skating in 1998. Fast forward to today, Dani is a well-established academic, having graduated her PhD from Plymouth University in 2015. She's a senior lecturer in performance at the University of Leeds, an ambassador for skateboarding charity SkatePal, a co-founder and director of non-profit Skate Manchester, the author of the book Skateboarding and Femininity, Gender, Spacemaking and Expressive Movement, which was published in 2020, and is involved in many other projects. I had the opportunity to sit down with her for a nice chat early May 2023 to discuss how skateboarding has been a guiding force throughout her life and career so far. So here's my conversation with Danny. I hope you'll enjoy it. Let's maybe start with uh, you just telling me about how you started skating. So I read or I listened to interviews of you. I don't remember where I heard this, but that you grew up in uh, rugby close to yep. uh, Birmingham, not too far from there in the Midlands. Yeah. And that's uh, where you started skating, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So rugby is in the middle of England. It's a market town, so it's quite a small place. And I used to go to school. I lived very close to the town center. Mm -hmm. I used to come home and basically would often go out into walk around town after school and sort of just explore the urban space or sort of semi it's an urban space but it's kind of like a yeah sort of semi rural space okay and I, I feel like I've told this story quite a few times to different people so people might have heard this anyway but I went into WH Smith's which is a news agent's And right, right. I, I saw this image on the cover of a magazine on the rack of a man performing a skateboarding trick and he was kind of hovering above the ground and I and he was lit by a street light and I was just very drawn to this image. It was um it really appealed to me and I sort of started reading through the magazine and was really fascinated by this activity of skateboarding which I hadn't really much knowledge of at all. I'd probably seen people skateboarding maybe on the TV or maybe even mm -hmm. a little bit around rugby but anyway so I asked my parents I sort of really I love this magazine and I read through it a lot and bought it you know regularly and then I asked my parents to buy me a skateboard for my 16th birthday I think it was okay yeah and there was a company called um I think it was I probably ordered it from Roller Snakes which is a sort of old UK based I think company yeah that rings a bell yeah yeah and um we ordered like all the we ordered it as a complete so they sent I think so they sent the skateboard and it was already assembled and then I mm -hmm. I put the skateboard on the floor of my parents living room which was carpeted and kind of put on a 411 video which I'd ordered at the same time as well yeah <laughs> and kind uh -huh. of like basically started to learn to ollie and in the living room Was that 401 video was it like a kind of trick tip video or was it a regular kind of 401 video Um I can't remember I think it might have actually been a beginner's guide to skateboarding even I think they maybe produced something like that but I can't remember What about the magazine you just mentioned like seeing that magazine at the newsstand like uh or sorry in the in the bookshop I think it was a sidewalk magazine right magazine. But do yeah. you remember who was skating on the cover 
You know how your brain is so faulty, your memory is so faulty. I have a feeling, I keep thinking that it might have been Damien Ince, who was a skateboarder from Northampton, but I'm not sure if I'm just remembering that wrong. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure who, who it was. I did actually, some years after, I got hold of a copy of the very sidewalk that I had found, this one. Uh-huh. But um, now I, I don't know where it's gone. And so I did know who it was but for now I can't remember yeah Yeah, that's okay no worries yeah I'll I'll try to track it down like you said it was 98 right it was it was I reckon it was something like April or May because my birthday's in August so that would have meant a couple of months I would have probably yeah engaged with it for a couple of months before asking for a yeah Mm -hmm, So we're going to talk about that later, but I saw something that I thought was interesting and I wanted to ask you to comment maybe on it in uh, the intro of your book, Skateboarding and Femininity. I'm going to quote you on this. You said, um, I am not a typical skateboarder and it has taken me a long time to become comfortable with being slightly out of place and to locate my own body and practice within this culture. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting because like, what did you mean kind of by a typical skateboarder? Did you mean uh, like skill wise or the way you approached it or just by the fact that you were a girl and probably there weren't many, many girls around you that were skating at that time? Like, uh, what Mm. did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, all of those things. First and foremost, yeah, it was um, the real complete absence of other girls and women skateboarding when I started. Because I lived near to Northampton, so I skated a lot in a skate park called Radlands, which no longer exists, but was a very famous sort of skate park, landmark skate park. Mm -hmm. And I remember... I remember seeing there was one other girl at the time that I was skating who would kind of regularly use the park. And then I remember seeing one other woman there during the time. So, I mean, really very few. Right, right. So that was part of it. But also, I suppose, yeah, the, the way that I approach skating, because I've I've always been attracted to it as an activity, but never I never really connected a lot with maybe like a sort of dominant style that I was seeing in the 90s or that my friends were performing. Mm-hmm. I've always really been attracted to, I guess, a lot more of the sort of flowing style and also more freestyle skateboarding. But freestyle wasn't something that I was exposed to either when mm-hmm. I was 16. So it was a lot of street skating and what I would consider to be quite linear use of spaces and very repetitive standardized somewhat yeah so in all of those ways that you mentioned Mm -hmm. felt a little bit kind of out of place like I'd found this thing that I sort of I had this very strong gut connection to in a weird way but there were all these aspects of it which I didn't feel I particularly fitted into or that didn't necessarily meet my desires and uh, was there a point where you felt a bit more comfortable with this? And can you recall a point in time where you kind of felt, okay, like uh, now I feel a bit more comfortable in my skin as a skater and I feel a bit more welcome within this skate community? Or Honestly, it didn't happen until a really long time, <laughs> a really mm. long time after. And um, what I would say is that I sort of stuck skateboarding out to some degree for about 10 or 15 years before I met So I met a woman called Laura Powell, who is... Yes, I saw her name in your book uh, a couple of times, yeah. Yeah, so folk who've been skating for a long time in the northwest of England probably will have come across Laura at some point. She's like, you know, a lifer, a veteran skateboarder. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I got to know her actually through Sidewalk Magazine had a an online forum. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was quite a <laughs> fun and contentious space <laughs> in lots of ways. <laughs> okay. But she used to post on there and I used to post on there and I kind of got to know her. And then when I moved to Manchester, because she's from that area, mm-hmm. uh, sort of from the north, in Lancashire, we ended up sort of meeting up. And that was a bit of a revelation to me because it was like having a mentor suddenly. And it was this mentor who obviously looked a lot more like I did, you know, was uh, coming from a woman's perspective. Sure. And someone someone who'd really she's about 10 years older than me I think and she'd obviously encountered all of the same kinds of challenges that I had but she she was just a lot more I think a lot more confident than I was and was able to hold space for herself in a really inspiring way so I can remember there used to be a skate park in Manchester called I think it was called Central and it was run by a bunch of skaters I'm not sure who they were and it was one of those like really quite scary skate parks to go into or from my perspective intimidating very intimidating and yeah and when I can remember going there with Laura and she just saying to me take your turn it's you know it's your turn you've Mm -hmm. paid your money to be in here you've got every right to be here just as much as everyone else yeah yeah and that was, you know, having that kind of connection with someone who was really willing to advocate for me in spaces and really saw me and understood the challenges that I had faced, really, I guess, in trying to you know, get into skating. It was just um, that was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you also about like your academia background. So I read that you did a degree in drama and then a master's degree in contemporary art. And a bit later, you did like a PhD. And now you're actually working at university in uh, Leeds, I believe. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could take me kind of through your journey with uh, academia, like uh, especially, I think I heard it, it was probably in the one of the Pushing Borders panel talks. You said something along the lines of that you were basically not necessarily attracted to academia or studying for a long time when you were younger. And um, mm. but it kind of just uh, happened and you obviously got very interested in it and you're now working as a researcher and everything. And so, yeah, can you tell me about like kind of the pivotal moment that got you into academia? academia maybe yeah I so I I wasn't a good student at school what I will start by saying is I've always been like quite bright and you know generally like interested in things and quite curious but really never connected to the school system in Mm -hmm. lots of ways and was quite a disruptive student just because I was often I think like looking back on it I guess I'm maybe more a bit more of a like, you know, kinesthetic learner I, I need to be doing things and there were aspects about the authority of school that I really that I struggled with a lot sure so as a result you know I, I wasn't like the school I went to never channeled me into going to university I don't think any of my teachers expected that that would be a route that I would go down and but I did end up at university I went to university in Northampton which is you know it's considered a sort of um it's a, an ex sort of polytechnic university it's not like a, a very prestigious university mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I kind of scraped my way in there with really quite poor results but when I got to Northampton when I got to university there I was suddenly in this very different sort of learning space where thinking for yourself and challenging authority was suddenly what was available to me mm-hmm. and that that really appealed to me I was like okay so school has been awful but this is the kind of learning that I can get on board with because like I get to argue about stuff I get to discuss things I can think for myself and that was like amazing Mm. and then I studied drama 
because, you know, it was a subject that I was always really interested in. And then I met one of my tutors in, in the second year who is now, well, I would consider him a, a good fr- very good friend of mine now anyway, but, um, Lee Miller and his wife, Bob Worley, both of whom are absolutely incredible theatre academics, performance academics. Okay. He taught me on the when he came to work at Northampton in the second year of my degree and he really encouraged me because I wouldn't say I mean most of my family are sort of working class I would say I mean my dad was like an immigrant and so the idea of a class structure in Palestinian society doesn't it doesn't translate exactly into sort of UK context Mm -hmm. but my dad came over to the UK to study but the whole of like my mum's side of the family are very working class and so I grew up in an environment where you know my dad really wanted me to sort of like develop and go on to university because he'd had that opportunity but it wasn't necessarily something that I was sort of it wasn't necessarily something that was considered necessary or you know important across like my entire family mm-hmm. so going on beyond an undergraduate degree was like wild you know it was a, it was a completely unheard of or unheard well yeah it was like why you know how would that happen and I, <laughs> yeah. I can remember Lee saying to me in my third year you know you have you ever thought about doing a PhD and I was like what like you know I was kind of like how is that even what you know it was just like something that completely blew my mind but it was like wow this person is really wants to invest in me Mm. they think I'm capable of doing something like that and I I think in hindsight it really made me realize how how important it is to have people that are looking out for you and want you to do well and kind of like want you to develop and can kind of like help to support you in those ways and it that I really feel like that whole story is reflected in my skateboarding story if you see what I mean yeah yeah, yeah. you need people to kind of like hold space for you to look out for you to advocate for you to push you forward or most people do most people don't have a, like an intrinsic sort of like drive where they're kind of very confident and can go and do things yeah 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 and I think we take that for granted as well. I think like in some families or in some social settings or whatever, people have like might have that and don't necessarily recognize it. But like when you don't have it, of course, you don't know what you don't have either. Yeah. And so anyway, so he really sort of encouraged me to do a PhD. And then when I, I was uh, like thinking about that, I was kind of like, what would I do this on? And he he started actually encouraging me to mine the experience I'd had as a skateboarder. And I was like, yeah, it's something that's really bothering me it's something that's really stood out to me and so I wanted to explore why it was that fewer women participate in this kind of form of play in urban spaces and I wanted to you know delve into that and suddenly I was in this space this critical space Mm -hmm. I'd had access to through sort of education and drama and performance and dance to sort of examine that Mm. so that's kind of how it happened and then I mean after you do a PhD there's like there's only so many career avenues open to you I guess and um so I sort of like dropped into then you know teaching and working for a university so it's not something that I had ever aspired to it's just something that I kind of like developed into yeah it organically kind of uh, happened Mm. and so I think you finished your or completed your PhD in 2015 right around that time yeah. How long did it take you to complete it? Because I, I know in France, usually a PhD lasts for about three years, but sometimes mm-hmm. it can last a bit longer, like five, six years sometimes. But uh, how long did it take you to finish yours? 
Yeah, I did it in five years. I did it um, part time because I had to work along alongside doing it, of course. And um, yeah, so five years in total. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What kind of work were you doing aside from the PhD? Were you already like working in a university, or what were you doing? Yeah. So at that point, after I finished my masters, I just needed to earn money really badly, and so I I basically sent out my CV to lots of universities to try and get little bits of you know temporary teaching. Sure. And so I would travel around the country and go and do one-off bits and pieces here and there and then I got I managed to get um, a short contract in a university in Chester and so I worked there part-time and did a little bit of work at Northampton as well so mm-hmm. um, yeah it was it was kind of um, like hourly paid lecturing basically and some other stuff as well so I've done like tons and tons of jobs <laughs> but, okay yeah And so I was wondering if you could tell me about like your involvement with SkatePal now, because I believe you started working with them in 2015, that same year that you finished your PhD. And so you just mentioned earlier, I think, is it your dad who's from Palestine? Yeah, so my my dad was born in occupied Palestine in 1955. He grew up in Jerusalem, so that side of my family still live on the Mount of Olives in East Jerusalem, very close okay. to the old city and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And I grew up visiting Palestine with my family, but never really sort of strongly connected to it for lots of reasons, one of which was that we never learned fluent Arabic, so there was like a little bit of a language barrier. Obviously, it's a, a really tricky area to visit at times so like there's sure. you know there's lots of problems there and so there's all sorts of things that kept me from it and while I was writing up my PhD Israel were implementing Operation Protective Edge which was a another military incursion into Gaza which was devastating I think I can't remember the exact number something like I don't know 2,000 people were injured lots and lots and lots of people died mm-hmm. and it was a really distressing time and I just remember being sat in the library and kind of like writing up my PhD and sort of looking through the news in between and I remember I was scrolling through Instagram and Sidewalk magazine funnily enough had posted a video of this Welsh skateboarder Chris Jones performing oh, yeah. a, a backside board slide on a rail outside a shop in Ramallah and the you could tell very much that it was like it wasn't the UK it was like you know there was sort of Arabic writing on the shop I think mm-hmm. and you know it's kind of obvious so I sort of it stopped me in my tracks and I was like whoa what's going on here yeah people people skating in Ramallah and you know I'd visited like I say I visited Palestine with my family on trips and I'd taken my skateboard as well and sort of skated around a little bit but never connected with any skateboarders there so I was just fascinated by the idea that skaters from the UK were going over and skating in Palestine yeah yeah So I, I ended up getting in touch with um, Charlie Davis, who's... Um, the founder. Yeah, obviously, you know. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. <laughs> uh, And through sort of making friends with him and learning more about the charity, I ended up helping going out in the summer of 2015, I think it was, to help build the Asira Ashamalia skate park, which is in the north of the West right. Bank. Mm-hmm. And that really was just, that was a defining and life-changing experience in lots of ways. It completely reconnected me with my family and with Palestine and kind of 
it completely shifted as well my sense of what was important to me or like not shifted so much but kind of recalibrated sure and it also kind of reconnected me with skateboarding because at that point I'd sort of given up a little bit on skating I was kind of like you know I've been really trying with this and I've been I really want to kind of like keep going with it and I really enjoy it but at the same time it's getting harder and harder as I get older you know and friends that I used to skate with disappear it becomes more and more difficult for a woman in her 30s at that point to like kind of just go out in the street and skate and Mm. so I was kind of like petering out a bit and then suddenly I met all these people who were like more like me these wonderful interesting inspiring people like Charlie and Chris and my friend Doug who I met who's from Sheffield and just like who were really thoughtful had a real like social justice motivation in life who approached skateboarding in a much more sort of like relaxed and fun way Mm. who were kind of more aware of like the need to be critical socially and kind of like who I could chat with about stuff and it was just it was absolutely amazing experience Mm -hmm. and it kind of like made me realize that like I can find a place I can find a way to be part of this activity that I really love and I also can sort of be here in Palestine and find a way to be here yeah 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 I think you, I don't know if you keep doing that, but I read that you used to go there every year after this uh, first year in 2015. Mm. There's been COVID, so obviously between 2020 and now, you probably didn't go as much. But uh, when was the last time you went? Yeah, so I think it was 2019 or might have been 2018. But basically, yeah, when COVID happened, it was not possible. Right. And then I've not been able to get there since because um, after sort of COVID, then I got pregnant and I had a baby. Mm hmm. And so for all of those reasons, I've not been able to go back there, but I'm absolutely desperate to go back. I I really want to go back there. It's weird because I don't know whether this is something that is more in my head, like I've made it up and it's like, it's more of a psychological thing, Mm -hmm. but I, I just feel so much like I want to be there. And like, I have a a strong, um, I feel very like going there and and being back there is really important. Mm -hmm. And like, obviously, you know, like I say, half my family are there so like there is an obvious connection but it's just something about the place that I find very warm and generative and inspiring for sure and uh I saw that you're an ambassador for skate pal and I was wondering like what exactly does that kind of entail or like what exactly do you do for them like do you participate in events like in the UK Mm. or elsewhere to kind of talk about it and maybe I don't know raise funds for it or something like how are you involved with them as an ambassador Yeah, so exactly doing things like talks, sometimes organizing events myself as well. I've done a couple of events in Manchester, which is the city that I usually live in. Mm -hmm. Not there at the moment, but... And yeah, so spreading word about the charity, informing people about it, encouraging people to donate or to buy merchandise because that keeps the charity going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're the main things really. And yeah, being an ambassador for SkatePal was... I was asked by Charlie, which was really lovely and I it was an easy thing to agree to because mm-hmm. um, I feel so grateful to the charity for what they do and and I think that it's uh, it's really great and quite important work and I'm yeah so it's it's easy for me to do it because I'm quite happy to to talk about that and yeah and spread it yeah 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 for sure 
And uh, in the Skateboarding in Femininity book, I think you mentioned at times that you did some interviews with uh, people over there, like parents or kids that were, you know, coming skate in the skate parks that have been built by SkatePal and, and everybody. Yeah, I was wondering, like, how has been this experience of, you know, going there since 2015, basically, and seeing this mm. scene develop and, you know, skate parks opening and more and more skaters, you know, getting better, like Aram, who's now one of the main mm. guys over there and, and who's like a really good skater and like how has it been this whole experience of seeing it grow because you were there at the not at the very beginning but quite early stages still yeah um it's been amazing and obviously with regards to the skate park in Asira that's been particularly amazing because I ha have seen that from literally like there not being a skate park there and then like obviously seeing people start to use it it's wonderful I'm always fascinated by you know the new people that you meet whenever you go there but like also how much those people from years previous are still kind of visiting the park or like have some sort of connection to it mm-hmm And how much the charity is growing, it's it's absolutely amazing that Aram's doing the work that he's doing there. And I think that, well, I mean, I've written about this before, but the way that SkatePal have operated there, I think is, is a really good model because there's a lot of support for the local community. It wasn't just a case of sort of like building a skate park and then like, see you later. It's like, it's about a commitment to that community. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a consistency. And I'm trying to, Amber Edmondson as... Um, oh yeah, from SBGV. Yeah, she's, I can't remember where I've read it, or I think it was in an interview, she was talking about, you know, showing up and the, the importance of consistency and being there for a community and like being there every week, you know, or whatever it is to mm -hmm. participate. And of course, she's absolutely right. And I think like, that's one of the good things about what SkatePal have done there in that they're sort of there every year, and they're, they're really trying to kind of maintain that support. And that the important thing in a Palestinian context is that because it wouldn't necessarily be ideal in, in another kind of context, but it's important there because people can't leave. Mm, and yeah. because the idea of a sort of international exchange is very tricky. So, you know, by people being there, they're actually creating a solid Solidarity space where people can travel over, take part, you know, people can meet each other and like learn from each other back and forth. Mm. Um, but also, people who are visiting can see the situation on the ground for themselves which is really important. They can yeah. make their own decisions about what's happening there and kind of the politics of that area. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you will probably go back there in the near future, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if we'll, I'll manage it this year. Obviously now me and my husband and our daughter, we've got like, it's more, it's even more complicated now to take people. Sure, so, so yeah. But um, I'm really determined that in the next sort of uh, 12 months we'll go. Cool. I'd actually, I'd actually really like to live there for a bit. I'd really like to oh, yeah? go and spend, spend a longer time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be Maybe. interesting, yeah. <laughs> I'm jumping to a kind of another subject, but linked to everything we're talking about. But um, I wanted to ask you just your like impressions of um, participating in the Pushing Borders events, because that's where I first heard about you and your work. And, and yeah, I was just wondering, like, now that it's been a few years since the last edition in Malmo in 2019, how do you kind of reflect on it now? And also, how impactful do you feel these events have been? Mm. I think that Pushing Borders was a breakthrough moment from my perspective on ushering in this new, I'm going to say like a new era of skateboarding culture, really. Sure, where, yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't like down to any one or two or three people. It was like, there seems to be this convergence of 
different people across different continents disciplines yeah who are all sort of asking more of skateboarding and people involved in skateboarding and kind of bringing a kind of critical perspective to skateboarding practice in a really interesting way and that i think that the the pushing borders team which includes a lot of people really managed to ride that wave and to bring those things together so i mean i my feeling about the first pushing borders was it was just such a such an interesting and affirming and important space to open up Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that all the conversations were necessarily perfect or that it couldn't have been better or any, you know, any of those things. But but um, it was so important, I think, to to do that, to have that kind of moment of like raising this zeitgeist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of like what is needed in skateboarding. So I think it was brilliant in that sense. And I I, it's really it's a shame. It's a pity that the the format and the, the labor involved and resources needed for it were not sustainable for the the core team that were working on it and um because you know it was a great great series of events but at the same time at the same time i think it was this like important catalyst mm-hmm. and it's i think it's actually given birth to a whole lot of a lot of different sorts of events and initiatives and, and even things like this podcast for example sure. which perhaps which perhaps might not have manifested mm-hmm. so and there's a I think it's important for there to be lots of different voices and for things not to sort of like come from a centralised this idea like of a, a group of people who functioned as a catalyst to set something off that created this distributed network of really critical exciting interesting people looking at skateboarding to me is the most exciting and wonderful thing mm-hmm it doesn't need to be this like this one event run by a few people that just repeats and repeats and repeats over and over again we don't need to repeat the same practices and yeah the same rhythms of previous generations i think it's it was important in that sense I also wanted to ask you, I saw that you were involved with the Skate Manchester. I, I saw that you were the director, actually. I don't know if you still are. I was like, oh, you also do this? Like, how, how do you do all, all of yeah, these different yeah. things? It's crazy. <laughs> But uh, yeah. yeah. I'm one of the directors. There's three directors. So there's Christian Berger, who's my husband, and Patrick Critch, who's an absolutely amazing, wonderful human being and skateboarder (laughs) who lives in Manchester. Okay. Yeah, so it's the three of us. We started Skate Manchester because we wanted to advocate for skateboarding in the city because Manchester's a really big and amazing city with probably, I would say, one of the worst provisions for skateboarding. (laughs) You could... Okay. Considering its size, you know, and and the sort of the scene and the history of the skateboarding scene in that city, it's just quite shocking, really. Mm-hmm. So we we wanted to like try and help to develop that, but also the three of us were all really turned on to social justice issues, um, were involved or participated in pushing borders, and so we also wanted to address issues around inclusivity within skateboarding and within public urban spaces. So that's kind of where that came from, and we. We've been trying to to do that now for so we we started Skate Manchester in 2019 and we've we've managed to achieve a few really great things. We've started doing some we set up skateboarding sessions in um, an area of Manchester, which is where we all live. Actually, it's kind of in Moss Side, but with like a community there that don't that haven't been involved a lot with skateboarding, but the kids absolutely love it. Mm. Um, so that's been really lovely. We've also been trying to campaign for a, a free indoor space for skateboarding oh, yeah. 
Cool. We managed to um, acquire a, a spot and we we got some fund we crowdfunded for the space and then the the space was like taken back and so it's been really hard to kind of get anything moving on that and we're all trying to do that with having full-time jobs so to be yeah. honest it's a very 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 slow moving thing. Sure, I understand. But we we will continue to develop it it's just going to move very slowly. <laughs> mm, okay. This is kind of a random question, but uh, I was interested in asking you about this. You did an interview with um, this guy, Chris Alton, not yeah. too long ago. And you said something that I thought was interesting. Uh, I'm going to quote you. So you said, there's this perception, I don't know how true it is really, that most skaters don't think about it and just get on with it. But I think that skaters do think very deeply about what they're doing. They tweak and try different things. We all do that in slightly different ways. But it's interesting that there's a dominant mode of behavior where we have to pretend like we don't care and we're not really thinking about it too much. Mm. And that kind of echoed something. I think it was um, John Darquist from Briguerriette. When I interviewed him, he told me something about the kids who are going to Briguerriette. And he told me like before, like in the past, skating was about the skill maybe the technicality of the tricks and kind of how wide your selection of tricks is or something. And today it's more about style, about having, you know, a very strong identity basically on your skateboard. And so I was just wondering, like, uh, where do you think this comes from? Kind of this, uh, I don't know if you can call it a fake nonchalant way of skating mm. or of some sort, you know, like uh, why do we celebrate kind of this effortless, at least in appearance way of skating mm. rather than, you know, a highly trained, kind of version of skating mm. so it's funny that you bring that up because I think um, I was literally we were talking about this I did a, an interview with Anthony Papalado as well just like oh, a few yeah. days ago he's just published it today actually I think oh okay nice I'll check it out Yeah, we would. I think we were actually touching on a lot, a lot of this because we were talking about the implicit and the explicit in skateboarding and how skateboarding is all about cool. It's all about being cool. Yeah. And cool is all about having an implicit knowledge and understanding of, of rules and structures and things. So you don't need to kind of overly explain anything or like bring anything too much out in the open, but you just sort of get on with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that skateboarders, like, obsession with that sort of nonchalance and maybe not bringing their knowledge too much to the surface or making it too much explicit is about it remaining in that level of kind of coolness of like, well, I just, this is what I do. It's not that important. But it, mm. of course, it's all happening there. That's what I, I think anyway about that. And in some ways, you know, that's um, that's wonderful. But I think um, that bringing things to the surface and talking about the way that we do things or making those knowledges or ways of moving and approaches ex more explicit is the only way to bring more people in and to develop more from skateboarding as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because when, when you keep things at that kind of like more implicit level, it means that the only people who can like really learn and develop from that are the people that get it yeah and the other people that are kind of able to access that I thought it was interesting, yeah, because uh, I definitely see this more in skating today. Like, um, I don't know if you watch many skate videos nowadays, but like when you watch videos from today, like on Thrasher or Free Skate Mag or wherever, people are definitely paying attention to style rather than you know trying this super hard trick, basically. I mean, some mm. people, of course, are trying to do NBDs and trying to, you know, explore new ways of skating. And, but like overall, it seems like people are really focused on trying to execute something in the most cool way as you right. said or like mm. the, yeah 
I mean, and that's kind of really wonderful to me because it's, it's all about performance, you know. And yeah, that's obviously sure. my field, and yeah, I really. Yeah. The idea of um, making something look aesthetically a particular way because, you know, that's how you want to express yourself and that's how you want to perform mm. is really interesting. On the flip side of that, and this comes from obviously the field of performance, we mm. have somatic practice. So practices that are all about like how it feels inside, internally, and how, how we kind of engage with the world, how we engage with the activity on a kind of like a much deeper mind-body relation. Mm-hmm. So I think um, those two things can sometimes be incompatible as well. Like wanting something to look a particular way generally means like the development of like technique and a sort of outward appearance of it. Yeah. But we shouldn't lose sight as well of like the joy and the benefits of doing an activity and like feeling into it and feeling the, the way that it feels. Yeah, yeah. And what what we can get from that as well. Even if it looks crappy, (laughs) that makes sense. So, like, I both appreciate focus on style because I think that's really interesting. But at the same time... You shouldn't lose sight of... um... Exactly, yeah. Mm. That's interesting, yeah. I I think uh, Leo Vals actually talked to me about this because he obviously has a way of skating that's quite unique. Mm. And uh, and I think sometimes people like kind of uh, talk shit on it or something like uh, mm. especially a few years ago when he was kind of experimenting with like power slides and stuff like that at a time where people weren't really doing that stuff too much and like kind of disregarded his skating because it was just not in the norm. Mm. But actually, I, I think he just followed his like gut feeling of this feels good. This is what I enjoy doing. This brings me pleasure. This is how I mm. like to skate. And I don't care like if it looks cool or if people validate mm. it, you know, like I don't need anybody's approval. Definitely. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. to the the book skateboarding and femininity i wanted to ask you like how this project started and how did the idea for the book kind of arrive and how long did it take you to write it and then i have a few questions of some things that i read in in it but yeah tell me about like how Mm. you started uh working on this because i I feel like this subject of uh, skateboarding and femininity or like gender in general is something that you've been working on or around for quite a long time so yeah yeah Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the book has been percolating for, like, you know, most of the time I've been skating, I guess. Sure. You know, like, I feel like it came out of that, all of that. And wanting to write something about women, women's contributions to skateboarding, but also to unpack ideas around skateboarding, the gendering of skateboarding. Mm. Because there's the the issue of skateboarding being more men and boy dominated, which is historically is the case and sure. still is to to a large extent. Although things are obviously different now, but there's that. And then there's, I wanted to sort of like move from that into kind of thinking about how do we think of skateboarding, the activity or the physical activity of skateboarding as a gendered activity or like how might we start to unpack and, and explore that? And so the first part of the book is about looking at different kinds of approaches to skateboarding historically and but also the ways in which groups of women or women or non-binary people and how they've contributed to the development of skateboarding. Right. 
and kind of unpacking that history a bit more. And then the the book looks at feminism, mm -hmm. and the the idea of of feminism and how that intersects with skateboarding or relates to skateboarding. And then I look a little bit at like skateboarding kind of tricks and approaches to skateboarding and the ways that they are gendered through the way that people articulate them, mm. but kind of trying to problematize that a little bit as well. And then thinking about this idea of the difference between, I guess, what we were just talking about, which is like style and aesthetics compared with like a kind of more somatic approach and how we might look at skateboarding as something that could be beneficial to the mind body mm -hmm. as much as it is an aesthetic activity that we can look at and, you know, think is interesting and skillful. Mm. And that, that move away from the sort of like the idea of a sport or an aesthetics into a kind of more mind-body somatic practice was related to gender because of the ways that sports, if you think about the concept of sports, tend to focus on activity around a particular sort of um, particular types of masculinity. Whereas the field of dance, which is where somatic practices are, are rooted, mm -hmm. is much more associated with the feminine, yes. with femininity. And so that was kind of the idea of that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that progression. So the book covers quite a few different things. Yeah. And actually, I although it was researched over um, probably about like a year or so, and like I say, all of the things that fil filtered into it came from much you know experiences much longer ago mm -hmm. but then I, I wrote it quite quickly I wrote the whole thing in about probably three months four okay months, so. oh wow yeah and how, how was it like received by your peers your friends or in skateboarding in general or like in academia like how was it received yeah I mean, it's been received pretty well. Like I've had some really nice feedback on it, some really positive feedback. I haven't had a lot of um, like criticism on it, which I would really welcome mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's lots of issues with it. It's hard to get like really thoughtful, critical feedback, I think, because, you know, I guess also it's tricky as well within skateboarding because a lot of um, a lot of us are friends. Yeah. And so, you know, it's hard to kind of be real with each other. But, you know, <laughs> sure. yeah. but like as far as I'm concerned, it expands my arena, expands everyone's arena to like have those kinds of conversations. So, yeah. So if you have any criticisms, <laughs> you're very welcome to uh, raise them. Not but, really, yeah. unfortunately, but I'll have to read it again to maybe yeah. uh, try, try to find something to <laughs> say you. bad things about or something. <laughs> No, but I mean, it's pretty safe. It's not like... I, yeah, no, I, no, no, no. There's nothing too um, controversial. Mm, I could have uh, probably pushed a bit more as well, but yeah. No, I, I thought it was super interesting. And uh, yeah, I just wrote down a, a couple of things that I thought were interesting, at least that kind of caught my attention and that I wanted you to maybe address a bit more. But um, you talked about Salinger, J.D. Salinger wrote this novel, The Catcher in the Rye. Mm. So it says basically the image of the catcher in the rye that Caulfield keeps returning to in the novel represents a kind of perpetual child intent on ensuring other children don't fall off the cliff and into the realms of adulthood. And also a bit later, you mentioned something that I thought was interesting about Lance Mountain and the Bones Brigade. And he got married at that time in his like early 20s. And apparently Powell Peralta wasn't too comfortable with him kind of, you know, saying out loud that he was getting married because it was like it would make him an adult, basically. Mm. 
And to be a skater, you needed to embody kind of a child. And uh, mm. so, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. I never really thought about that. And obviously, today it's different because at the time, like in the 80s, skaters would kind of, you know, retire in their early 20s or mid 20s or something. And mm. obviously, today we have pro skaters that are nearly 50 or something or sometimes above that. So it's a different kind of landscape for skateboarding. But yeah, I was wondering yeah. if you could kind of tell me a bit more about this idea of like skaters being just children or something like that. Yeah, I mean, well, without wanting to, I don't know, maybe be too philosophical about it, I think if you look at skateboarding and the way that skateboarding culture operates, I think that there's this focus on this, like, Peter Pan idea, which is mm. this, like, perpetual childhood concept. And this idea of the freedom that that engenders and the joy and the, the fun of it and the lack of responsibility, all of those things, which on one hand are great, really mm. great. And we all, we all want that. Ugh, I look at my daughter and I'm like, why can't I just be a child again? <laughs> like, yeah. have not have these responsibilities. And, and then on the flip side of that, of course, that raises lots of challenges. If you think about how skateboarding has been as a culture, mm -hmm. I just think you can see that trope again and again. It's this idea of like, you know, it's not my responsibility. Oh, like I'm just saying these things and I'm saying these words that are maybe like really homophobic, but it's like, I didn't mean it because I was just, you know, whatever. It's just me talking. Yeah. <laughs> At some point we all have to take responsibility for the things that we do and say in the world. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, you know, that shift of era that we were talking about earlier in this conversation, you know, precipitated perhaps in some ways by like pushing borders or like, yeah. or certainly the confluence of that idea. I really think that we've seen this like adulting mm. <laughs> shift in skateboarding. Yeah, yeah. Whereby like a lot of people who were skateboarding in the 80s and 70s and 80s are now like much older people. And they've had all this life experience and they're kind of obviously very much become adults anyway yeah yeah but like on a philosophical level i think skateboarding has gone through that transition of like being within that childhood realm and then kind of like coming to terms more with like the responsibilities of being in the world mm -hmm. another thing i wanted to uh have you comment on was uh you mentioned in the book a quote from uh sarah merle interview that she did with uh jan cleaver and tom bodwid So she said, in a time where skateboarding is so accepted and trendy, I feel like female skaters are the only real underground skaters left. Facing many of the obstacles older skaters still romanticize, like being an outcast, being different and or underground, etc. And I thought that was interesting. I don't remember if you say when this interview happened. I guess it wasn't that long ago. But uh, mm. do you feel like it's still kind of the case today? Because I feel like women in skateboarding are, of course, much more present. And, and that's mm. a great thing. It's still not quite at a balance with men, of course, uh, not even close. But uh, but like, obviously, it's a different uh, landscape, again, for, for women in skateboarding today. And um, yeah. I don't feel like um, girl skaters or women skaters are necessarily underground anymore. Mm. At least that's my impression of it. But like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think uh, I wouldn't say that either. I think I honestly don't know how to think about the idea of an underground in skateboarding. In some ways, um, the things that are coming to my mind are these kind of groups like, um, what's the name of that group that kind of skate in like masks and stuff? Are they Barrier Cult? Oh, I've heard about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they're like, well, I would think of them as like, that's kind of like the underground, these kind of like 
much more niche kind of skating niche yeah folks like that i guess are kind of the real maybe the more of the underground now Mm -hmm. i think that was an interesting quote that one and that idea i'm not sure when it was that that was published but i'm gonna guess it was probably about 10 years ago maybe and things are changing quite fast in skateboarding aren't they it feels like every year or so new things are kind of coming out so but yeah honestly i i'd like to know more about skateboarding underground actually and like what's what's going on what does it mean today yeah exactly yeah yeah also you published this book right before the olympics well a year before Mm. because they got postponed to 2021 but obviously it's kind of changed a bit the landscape of skating as well not profoundly or anything but like it definitely was a pivotal moment in skateboarding history at least but yeah no it's uh yeah i I don't know if uh, skateboarding is underground at all anymore basically (laughs) like yeah I was just about to say, I, I think we might have excavated the whole mine. Yeah, I think yeah. we might have like, I think we might have like uncovered everything. Yeah, <laughs> which is sad. It's kind of sad in a way, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but it's uh, it's still cool, still interesting. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So also I'm changing gears a bit, but I wanted to ask you about this project that you're involved with with your husband, I believe. This um, company called Plant Ecology Beyond Land. Yeah, uh, I thought that was very interesting. Like, can you tell me about this project and how it all started? So Christian, my husband Christian, grew up in Swansea. He actually was born in Munich in Germany. So like he's he's German, but he grew up in Swansea. So he grew up surfing. Mm-hmm. And when I met him, because I, as you know, grew up in the Midlands, so like right. was nowhere near the coast or not very close to the coast. So I started surfing when I met him and love surfing was wonderful, even in this country, which is just it's cold all the time, obviously. And that's the best time to surf is in the winter. But um, yeah, so he comes from a science background. So he studied physics and that's kind of more in that field. So we both were kind of thinking about wanting to pivot our skills towards something that would be beneficial within the climate emergency context, because there's a need for all of us to do do something and, and to, yeah, to respond. And so I think that that was where that idea came from. So Christian had been reading a lot about seaweed and the, the potentials of seaweed because it's, first of all, it's a like really protein rich vegan food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can use it for bioplastics, medicines, biofuel. It can be used as a flood defense, big sea kelp farms in the sea, kelp barriers. Like, mm-hmm. It can be used for all sorts of things. It's a really incredible material and food. But it's not typically eaten in the British Isles, despite there's, a, there's actually a real history of Celtic use of and eating of seaweed okay. in the British Isles. But like it's kind of died out and there's not really much of an industry in Wales. There's a little bit of an industry in Scotland and Ireland, but um, Wales is there's not so much at all. Okay. And m- most of the seaweed that we use and buy comes from East Asia, of course, like where the seaweed kind of like farming is much more established. Developed. And, and, developed exactly okay so there's a kind of renewed interest in seaweed aquaculture industry on the british isles and so we wanted to kind of decided we wanted to sort of get into that and so we established plant ecology beyond land with the aim of like trying to enter into that sector and support it in some way and um, get involved and what we came to was the idea of um, the need for because we we don't have like working boats and we're not we're not able to skip a boat so we can't really do like sea farming in that sense okay 
But what we could do and what we, we started to explore was creating a hatchery, which is a basically like a... It started out as a, a shipping container and we, we seed kelp onto line and then we sell it to sea farmers and they put it out to sea and grow seaweed. Okay. And then that sort of developed. So because of like Christian's like physics and engineering background, he started um, creating environmental monitoring equipment as well because we recognise that there's a need to understand the conditions in particular areas so that you can grow the best seaweed and, and also make sure that it's not having a negative environmental impact. Yes, okay. And so we've started doing a lot more work on environmental monitoring. But when we conceived the business, we always had in mind that there would be like an arts artistic strand a kind of like creative strand and a community focused strand to the work because we were also thinking about the idea of creating a business that doesn't follow the sort of like old-fashioned structures of business Mm. but like actually looks more holistically at how you create businesses and integrate them within to locales and support local infrastructures so the idea was that we would do this like seaweed work but we would also be communities focused and and in terms of working with communities, but also looking at how to support the development of the seaweed industry by bringing more local people on board. Mm. And that was kind of like more where I was coming from in terms of bringing my skills to this project. Yeah. One of the things that I'm working on at the moment is taking quite a long time to get there, but I'm, I'm working on a, a funding proposal that will involve using skate parks and skateboarding activity as a way of engaging people with ocean ecology okay. and sort of seaweed farming and seaweed, including that, including mm-hmm. seaweed. Because skate parks, of course, are like monuments to the sea. They're designed from the idea that like the sort of transitions are supposed to be like pools and like waves. and Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They come out of this like Californian landscape. So that's currently where I'm at is kind of trying to to explore that. And it builds a little bit on projects like Brigaria in mm-hmm. Malmo and their idea of like kind of bringing education with skateboarding and kind of exploring what the, the intersection of those two things. But it's also about using existing skate park spaces in ways that they haven't previously been used before mm-hmm. and trying to engage young people outside of a sort of conventional classroom. Okay, that sounds like a super interesting project, yeah. So you, have, you haven't yet organized like a gathering in a skate park to kind of have a conference or like a talk about this whole project? No, um, it would be good to do that. We, we're actually in July, we're doing a pilot okay. with um, a skate park in Holyhead, which is in North Wales on the Isle of Anglesey, um, which will involve some school children from Holyhead High School and also some of the local skaters. I've been in touch with like one sort of skater in particular who's like a real veteran in that area and makes a lot of film scenes videos okay in hollyhead and so through my connection with him he's called mike sanderson and his company is called floppy skateboarding you should check out some of his videos they're nice oh yeah haven't heard of it yeah yeah so what is it called floppy floppy i think it's floppy skateboarding or floppy skateboards or something okay, yeah. okay i'll check it out yeah so hopefully in july we're sort of gonna pilot this and get some people together and see what they think and have a chat about it so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that sure yeah 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 Okay, I also wanted to ask you about this latest thing that I listened to from you, the Skate Park Allyship audio artwork. Mm. 
Can you tell me about this project and how the idea kind of started? There's a continuity between like the book that we mentioned before and this project, of course. But um, yeah. I thought it was interesting that it was an audio artwork. I hadn't really, I, of course, I, I do a podcast, so I listen to podcasts and, and music and stuff. But I hadn't quite listened to something like this before. I think I told you when I listened to it, I went to a park here in Paris and just walked around and I thought it was really interesting and like an immersive and kind of meditative a bit and mm. yeah it was interesting and well made and food for thought kind of so yeah tell me about how this whole project started and uh Yeah, so I was invited to be part of a research team on a project uh, looking at girl skaters' use of skate park spaces in north in the north of England, mm-hmm. which was headed by some academics from Nottingham Trent Uni. But my involvement with that project was kind of like a bit more, wasn't really very central, but the main thing that I was um, responsible for on the project was the creation of this audio artwork, which is something I proposed to them when we were planning the project. Project, I was kind of what I was thinking was mm-hmm. because they were doing interviews with women and girls using the skate parks I thought it'd be really interesting to create a sort of an artwork that what I had wanted to do was like something more participatory where we would work with the interviewees and sort of develop something together but it didn't work out exactly as we had wanted to because of just the way it worked out okay okay <laughs> So what happened in the end was that I used the interview transcripts as the basis for creating these fictional characters who are what you hear in the audio artwork. Right, yeah. And actually, in hindsight, I mean, both approaches would have been interesting, like if we'd have done something more participatory with research participants. I think that would have been really interesting. But this was actually, the way it worked out was also really great and interesting. So. So what I did was I wrote the audio artwork has three strands. One is it's a conversation between three fictional characters who are talking about what supports them in skate parks. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of like the alley ship info, if you like. And then another strand that kind of weaves into it is this narrator character who is giving the listener cues and instructions for movement in right. the space yes. that they're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these were instructions that I developed from thinking through the idea of how we occupy skate parks or skate spots and thinking about trying to change the listener's perspective on the way that they move and getting them to embody a skate park or a skate spot in a different way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to kind of to feel out of place at times or to feel strange and to explore the space in different ways. And then the third strand of the artwork, I employed a, a very good friend of mine who is an incredible skateboarder and friend from Manchester, Guillaume Dujat. And he's a really great composer, mm-hmm. really fantastic. So he created the music, really, that the whole piece hangs on to and creates this beautiful atmosphere yeah, yeah, yeah. around those things. So it was kind of a collaboration between us. And then he brought on, actually, um, Lily Holland Freaky, who does uh, the cello pieces in the, oh, yeah. in the work as well. Mm-hmm. And um, that's it. That's the, the work. Are you going to maybe do more of these in the future? Or I assume it's a lot of work and probably mm. takes a bit of time to kind of think about it and then get all the people involved and record it and then edit it and everything. It's a whole process. But uh, mm. I thought it was interesting. I, I'm sure this is something, you know, you could probably develop with other themes and everything. So do you think you'll do other ones in the future? 
I quite often do work with audio and instructions or scores. So this is quite typical of my artistic practice. And mm. it's, so I probably I would like to do some more of these. And I was thinking about that. But at the moment, I'm, I'm really keen to get this uh, artwork heard more. And what would be really cool would be to like, have um, the QR code embedded, for example, in different spots and sites. And maybe yeah. some people will be intrigued enough to, to listen give it to a it. Listen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that'd be really cool. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a format that I like to use, the audio yeah. format. It's very interesting because it forces you to imagine and put yourself in this situation and mm. without having an image to kind of tell you everything. And mm. whoever's listening to this interview, like I highly recommend they listen to it with like headphones and probably go for a walk or a skate or something where you can not think too much and just be immersed in it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's quite mm. an interesting experience. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so before we do the friends questions, I have just one last question from me. And that's basically what's the most valuable lesson you feel you learned from skating? I think the, the most valuable thing that I've learned from skating is to not be afraid to be vulnerable and show yourself. I think that that is at the very essence of like what skateboarding is about. And that's why it's so difficult. And that's why it can be so intimidating. Mm. You're in such a vulnerable position and you're showing yourself in such a profound way. And the process of doing that regularly, I think makes you, helps to make you more open and maybe a, a bit more lighthearted. And that's never a bad thing. Let's see. Some of them are actually questions that were for you and Sander as we initially planned to do a three-person interview. Mm. So I think this first one is for both of you, but like you can obviously respond to it. Mm -hmm. Sander, Danny, Luke Santiago, I got a couple questions for you both. Firstly, uh, for better or worse, we often have to justify ourselves in the academy in terms of what we're interested in. So why do you feel that skating, an interest in skating, is something that need not be justified in terms of your respective disciplines? Um, you know, that is, why is it something more than a passion or hobby that we kind of collectively share? And uh, secondly, I was curious about how you both balance your relationship in terms of being both a skater as well as an academic. That is, is it skater first, academic second, or academic first, skater second? Um, because, you know, it's my feeling that how you make sense of this relationship or this question is pretty informative in terms of both how we participate in a, a particular space in a moment in time, but then also, you know, whatever sociological or conceptual or theoretical fruits we hope to bear from that participation in that moment or space or process. So, yeah, how do you kind of balance that relationship between both being a skater as well as being an academic? Okay, hope you both are well. I appreciate you both very, very much, as well as you, Quentin. Hope all is good, and uh, take care. That was uh, Luke Cianciotto. I hope oh, I'm okay. saying his name okay. He was part of that panel talk at, with you at Pushing Borders yeah. about academia and skateboarding. Yeah, yeah. I didn't recognize his voice. But yeah, yeah, it's hard with the audio. It's not very easy. Okay, so I think I can answer that. Great questions. Thank you, Luke. Uh, I think I can answer kind of across the two questions. So sure. what I would say, first of all, is that dance and drama and theatre are already really devalued within the academy. <laughs> so, really? 
Yeah, so, or like, I don't think get enough value. So I understand and recognize that. Mm -hmm. I think that in terms of the, the work that I do, because it's so focused around skateboarding, I think the fact that I'm a skateboarder and that, that I have this deeply embodied experience of skateboarding is vitally important to my ability to understand that and to get knowledge from this area of practice. And I'm saying that as well because I have had some quite bad experiences in academia where I feel that the expertise that I have from my positionality as a skateboarder was both disregarded and seen as not valuable, but at the same time used extractively by other academics to kind of gain knowledge on this topic. Okay. And so I think it's really problematic because historically, when when you're exploring a particular something, mm-hmm. a phenomenon or, or activity or whatever it is, historically, there's been this kind of this uh, focus on objectivity and like the researcher being outside of the thing that is being explored and that that is a somehow kind of neutral position. But of course, that's absolutely ridiculous and it's not the case because we're all interconnected and we're all part of the dynamic and power structures that exist. So somebody who is not a skateboarder, who is examining skateboarding, might think of themselves as being neutral. Mm -hmm. In fact, they lack a really important set of implicit markers and insights into that culture that they can't bring to bear on any kind of analysis. And at the same time, they have their own implicit biases around those spaces and those people because they're not skateboarders and because they're taking a different position and standpoint. So there's much more of an emphasis now in academia on recognising your positionality and like where you're coming from and what that brings to bear on the thing that you're doing. Yeah. Other thing that you're researching. So... So it's vitally important that I'm a skateboarder doing this. And I feel very strongly about that because of the negative experiences that I've had. Mm -hmm. All right. This next one uh, is from Charlie Davis that we mentioned a few times. So he said, what are you going to do when Nyla shuns the skateboard and picks up some rollerblades? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, Well, you know, I'm very excited by the idea of her roller skating or skateboarding or doing anything at all. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, of course, I will will support her, whatever she wants to do. (laughs) Maybe I'll pick up some roller blades or some roller skates and join her. That would be lovely. Okay, let's do this one. So my question for Danny would be, if you could design a skate park, what would be the three main things, the three main obstacles you would put in that skate park to be inclusive to everybody? So, yeah, an inclusive skate park would have three types of designs, and what would they be? Mm, that's a good question. Who's that? I can't, I can't work out who that is. That was uh, Indigo Wheeling. Oh, Willing. it's Indie. Yes. Indie. I thought it was Indie, but like, yeah, okay, <laughs> cool. That's a good question. Okay, my first answer to that question is I wouldn't design a skate park. Okay. Yeah, so... <laughs> This is probably going to sound like a bit of a controversial thing to say, but I think that we don't need any more skate parks. And actually, I'm going to... I want to reference here Cousin P because he said it best the other day on Twitter. So he recently attended a skateboarding event. I think it was in San Francisco and it was kind of like an academic conference. Luke was there, I think, as well, maybe. And anyway, 
I think I heard of it, but wasn't it in San Diego or? Oh, yeah, it was in San Diego. I think was going there as well and Paulo O'Connor yeah. and some other people. Yeah, and I, I didn't know anything about it, so I, I'm not sure what it was called or anything, but basically... Yeah, yeah, me neither. He writes in this tweet, A recurring theme from the Stoked Sessions, Stop burning money by building skate parks. Legalize skating in town, especially in neighborhoods and business districts that shut down after 5pm on weekends. Mm. And, like... For different reasons, I think that skate parks shouldn't exist. I don't think that we should have, in a climate crisis and in a time when we really need to be thinking about inclusivity, we shouldn't be building spaces that are for, like, a single sort of use. Mm, yes. Or, like, you know, or for one sort of activity. So, for me, the idea of the skate park is dead and we don't need any more skate parks. What we need are, like, spaces that can enable and be activated by all sorts of different activity, whether it's skateboarders or rollerbladers or scooters or bikes or wheelchairs or dancers or whatever it is sure yeah 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 and if i was building a place like that well you know i would probably put in so there's three things that i think are really wonderful and they are sliding swinging and climbing so i would create three obstacles that enabled that kind of activity but by anyone using any kind of equipment if that makes sense okay interesting oh, very interesting what you said also before about yeah it does make sense we shouldn't be building brand new skate parks and kind of wasting all this money and energy and concrete on building infrastructures and dedicating them mm. specifically to one activity and rather just uh, bring skateboarding and all the other things you mentioned to parts of the city where it's most um, manageable yeah like let's make like let's look at like what already exists and what urban infrastructure is already there and then make that more usable for everyone yeah 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 to absolutely. play on okay this next one is from chris laden who i had on the podcast not too long ago so he said one of the best most interesting and also kind of surreal stories i've heard is what you've said about your phd research approach dressing in a deliberately stereotypically over-the-top feminine outfit and playing in public space without a skateboard to observe how the general public reacts to issues of both gender and the notion of play or performance. Do you think anything has changed, for better or worse, in terms of how women and girls are able to play or take space in public areas since you did that research? And what do you think about our collective ability as a community of skate activists to continue to affect change, again, for better or worse? Mm. Yeah, I guess um, from my perspective, I, I think that there's a lot more discussion around inclusivity in public spaces and girls and women's access to those kinds of play spaces. Whether you can draw a line between those things and my PhD is like much more difficult to say. But I like to think that I might have contributed in some small way to sure. that sort of shifting sound or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think um, you can't underestimate the, well, to evoke Henri Lefebvre, you can't underestimate the power of the instant and the thing that happens in a blink of an eye, mm -hmm. somebody doing something unusual in public space, even if it's only very, very temporary, because it's those kinds of moments of play and magic and absurdity that create really little small shifts. Sure. And we operate in a world where we're expected to demonstrate impact, especially in academia. It's like, 
like this, you know, everyone wants you to be able to say, I did X thing or I wrote this book and now the whole world has changed or this thing has altered or, and that's, um, it's just extremely rare for that to happen, you know. And like the reality is that we, we put things there out into the world in order to try and change them in really small ways. Mm. And hopefully they gather enough pace through joining with other things. And so I think that the most important thing that we can do as activists is to like is to have a real intention that we use our energy in a way that generally tries to make change for good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because then you know that you're like putting your energy into moving things in the right direction okay let's do this one hello it's sophie friedel from germany i also have some questions the first one goes to danny Danny, you are an academic, you are a skateboarder, and recently you have become a mom. And I was wondering how motherhood has changed your outlook on life, on skateboarding, maybe. And it would be really nice if you can share some of your experience. Maybe you had insights that would be interesting to know. And then also for Sanda, I know you're quite passionate about it. We talked about it before. Why is it important to bring academia into skateboarding? What are the benefits for skateboarding by doing so? And also what can academia learn from skateboarding? And then I actually wanted to write to both of you for ages, but never got around doing it. So now it's a wonderful opportunity to ask you. Thank you, Quentin. Will there be another pushing borders? Seriously, both events have been the most beautiful conference I've been to. And I know it's a lot of work, but it would be so wonderful if that can happen again. I wish you a wonderful podcast and hope to see you soon. Bye bye. Oh, thank you, Sophie. Gosh, lovely. In answer to her question for me, yeah, the most profound thing that has happened as a result of becoming a mother is that you just have zero time and zero sleep to operate on. And so all of the stuff that is not important just has to fall by the wayside. And that has been extremely empowering to me. It's really released me from a lot of social anxiety and enabled me to kind of really relax into things. And that's especially with skateboarding because I really, really don't care anymore <laughs> about like what I look like or how good I am. Getting the opportunity to go to a skate park and have a, a bit of a roll around and engage with my body and, you know, play. Yeah. It's just so, it's such a rarely beautiful, wonderful thing. And that's just really helped me to appreciate those kinds of moments. And so that's, that's what I would say. Mm. It's wonderful that that's come through kind of parenthood, really. And I hope there is another pushing borders. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Okay, this next one is from, I hope I'm going to say his name right, Ian Borden? Ian, yeah. Oh, he said Ian, okay. Yeah. So Ian Borden, so he said, your book, Skateboarding in Femininity, was published in 2020, a year before we saw skateboarding appear in the Tokyo Olympics. So much was made in advance and since that event of the possibilities that the Olympics would open up for females in skateboarding. So now that we are shaping up for skateboarding in the next Olympics, Paris 2024, what are your reflections on this? 
I think the Olympics has been really great for women and girls because the increased legitimacy that has like shone upon skateboarding, if you like, has meant that, of course, women and girls are much more spotlighted by organisations and companies and funders and all of those things. Mm. So there seems to be... So, you know, because of the way the Olympics operates and that need for a kind of um, different genders to be represented, or certainly men and women to be gender not all genders to be represented but anyway yeah um yeah. then that means that there's been a lot more support for women and girls i think in general and that's like filtered down which is really good mm. but at the same time the olympics isn't perfect and isn't open to all genders and still perpetuates a lot of um inequalities i suppose and yeah and tends to be focused on people who are who have the capital and the resources to sort of enter into those fields so mm-hmm. so it's good but what we really need is more support at the grassroots level for you know chris lawton can tell you Mm -hmm. the need for more support at that very like yeah that basic community level for skateboarding absolutely very true okay let's do this one hello danny having worked with you in interesting circumstances what would you say your experience has been as a part academic part arts practitioner and how would you describe that journey so that was a bedir bikar oh (laughs) as an academic and an arts practitioner uh yeah it's a it's a tricky one to kind of connect i think that the probably the audio artwork skate park allyship is a great example of sort of where those two things converge in quite a nice way yeah yeah but also Badir and I are working on a project in Plymouth at the moment. And that is, I think, just so beautiful and wonderful. And it's um, sort of skatable sculptures coming to Plymouth Civic Centre. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to that. And I think finding those points where that kind of creative work can happen, that really brings together the inquiry or the the research that is related to kind of use of public space or play and inclusivity with that sort of like wonderful creative realm of like creating an artwork and kind of designing an artwork in some way. When those two things do come together, it's so magical, but it's quite hard to, to find them yeah so i'm working a lot in collaboration with other people and um who can help to manifest those ideas really important that's why i really appreciate badir very much because he's a very wonderful creative person and Mm. yeah feel very grateful to know him yeah 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 when will this uh, happen you think uh, this project in plymouth yeah, it's hopefully it will be the end of June to the end of July that the project is, is scheduled, but it's, we're having some issues around the um, the sort of dates for it at the moment, so it's a bit tricky okay. to, to pin that down anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to it. I'll, I'll definitely share uh, whatever you, you guys put out. Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. great. I'll let you know. Cool. Okay, I have just a few last ones. So this one is from Sander, who we were initially going to have this conversation yeah. with. And uh, hopefully I'll, I'll do one with him as well uh, soon. So he said, Danny, it's so wonderful that Quentin is having a chat with you. Cal Beachy and Alexis Sablone are currently running a course on skateboarding. They read your book, Skateboarding and Femininity, a couple of weeks ago. How did you feel when you found out one of the skaters you write about is now reading your work and discussing it with students? I didn't know about that. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, so Kyle contacted me about this because 
oh my god is they're just they're doing the most amazing course and they're running the most amazing course and it's just sounds absolutely dreamy mm-hmm. i mean the fact that they're engaging with my book and it's just a completely unreal dream thing and it's just amazing and uh I would absolutely love to take that course. And I said that to Kyle and oh, it, it was really inspiring to hear about it. It made me, it really made my creative juices start to flow. So yeah, yeah, for sure. It'd be good to really awesome to do something like that in the UK. Okay, let's do this one. Hello, mate. Cheers for the reminder. So I guess it is a good one for Danny. So ask her about her uh, introduction to skateboard forums She used to come and post on the old sidewalk forum, I think not long after she first got into skating. And although some of it might have been a bit toxic, I think she found it quite an interesting community and it was probably quite a strange way to get your head into skateboarding, if that makes sense. She'll know what I mean anyway. If you just ask her about her her past as a forum lurker, that might get a good response. <laughs> That's Ben Powell, isn't it? Yes, yes. Okay, and so he's he's asking me to reflect on the forum. Yes, yes, exactly. You kind of touched on it earlier. You talked about skateboarding forums when we first started this conversation, I think. Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, I was thinking about the forum this morning. <laughs> um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a really. <laughs> It was both a really beautiful environment. I mean, I just, I loved interacting with everyone. But yeah, it was, at times, it was a bit um, mean, <laughs> a bit toxic. Mm-hmm. But um, I actually, I really appreciated people that I met through the forum. I met some absolutely incredible people in real life, both and online. So on reflection, I do, I think it was, it was absolutely critical, wonderful and important part of um, my skateboarding history. And I think Mm -hmm. for most people involved, warts and all with it. And um, one of the things about it that I do think is important is that you've got to give, it is good for everyone to have space to express themselves even if those opinions are really bad ones <laughs> or even if those opinions are like really problematic because actually when you get everything out in the open at least you know at least you can kind of like discuss things and mm. and I, I appreciated the support I got from people like Ben on that forum and, and Claire Alium as well and Laura oh, Powell yeah. who was on mm-hmm. Forum Lurker and, and other people And so as long as those spaces, as long as people feel able to call out that sort of behavior and call out comments and to be supportive of other people, they they function really in a quite an interesting way, I think. <laughs> But yeah, they can be tricky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, ju- I just want to say that I, one of the people I met, I went over to Los Angeles for a couple of weeks on my own a few years ago. And as a result of that, got to contact people on the forum and said I was going to be there and, and made a connection with a skateboarder who was from the UK, but lives in Los Angeles. He's an artist as well. Really, really amazing and interesting person mm-hmm. called Oliver Payne. And I ended up meeting up with him for a skate. And I just have to say this because he's good friends with a, a famous skateboarder called Mike Manzori from oh, yeah. the 90s in particular, sure. 2000s from London who's also now in Los Angeles and basically they're friends and so when I met up for a skate with him he he invited Mike to come out for a skate and like neither of them were aware at all of like how much I was obsessed with Mike Manzori when I was like 16 and 17 and I just thought, thought he was an absolutely wonderful skater with a fantastic style and just like loved him and tried to emulate him and dress like him mm-hmm. and suddenly I was like in Los Angeles skating in a car park with him and I was just 
just, it was too much for my, <laughs> like, adolescent brain to take. Process, it was just like yeah. me trying to do these really crappy, slappy grinds on a curb and, like, Mike Manzori is here. Oh, oh yeah, God. yeah. Must be intimidating. But, so yeah. there you go. So, that, so that's what the forum can do. It's a good demonstration right there, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have just two quick last ones. This one is from Adelina Ong, who was also part of the panel talk in uh, Malmö. So she said, looking back at the past year, what's one thing that you've learned about yourself that surprised you? At the past year? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, oh, gosh. Hmm. I'm actually quite surprised at how resilient I can be. I didn't realize, I always thought of myself as being quite um, a bit useless in that sense. <laughs> as soon as the going gets tough, I kind of crumble. But um, mm. the going got quite tough in the last year in lots of ways. And I feel like I'm actually a lot more resilient than I thought I was. So mm. that's a nice thing to kind of know, sure. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Adelina. That's a nice question. Okay, very last one. Assalamu alaikum, Danny. Hope you're doing well. I want to ask you, what do you think is the next step for the skateboarding scene in the Palestine should be? Oh, is that Aram? That was Aram, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, what I want to see is all of the new skaters, the skaters that are like coming up in Palestine who have just been skating for a few years and developing their practice. I want to see them take control of the scene and really take it in mm. the direction that they that they want to go because there are some really amazing people and um, I would love to see that. I would love to see what Palestinian skaters do with that. Mm. And the ways that they kind of like shape a scene for themselves that we can all learn from. Yeah, it's a great way to end it. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank you so much. It's really good to talk to you. That's it for my conversation with Danny. Follow her on Instagram at SkeeterDanny, S-K-E-E-T-E-R-D-A-N-I. Visit her website, daniabohawa.com, to check out some of the multiple projects she's worked on so far, including her book, Skateboarding and Femininity, and the skate park allyship audio artwork we talked about throughout our conversation. Lastly, visit skatepal.co.uk to support their amazing work towards the youth in Palestine. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Voice.